What's up, everybody? My name is Joshua Stein from the J. Stein Law Firm in Atlanta, Georgia. And welcome to the next episode of Sports and Torts, where each week we sit down with our friends, peers, and colleagues and discuss sports, law, and business. We have another tremendous guest on the show today. We have another lawyer on the show today. He's one of those lawyers who is so talented at so many different areas of law that I don't want to put him in a box and label him as practicing just one type of law. I'll let him tell all of you the types of cases and types of law he works on. He is a name partner at the law firm of Portnoy, Garner, and Nail, which is a boutique law firm in Vinings. The firm focuses very heavily on family law. Ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Mr. Garrett Nail. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me. Welcome, buddy. Yeah, so I I think it's number 25. Are we on 25? I think so, and it's always an interesting number. Uh, It's sort of unremarkable, right? 25th birthdays. Uh, 25th Amendment's nothing. B- Barry Bonds is number 25. 25 is not nothing. 24 or 26 is nothing. 25 but, is a know, nice... William McKinley was the 25th president, an assassinated lawyer. So, I was just getting the vibe of what you were sending. What I should do is hold this and make it episode number 26, 27, <laughs> and then throw off your entire intro. You're like, well, this makes no sense now. Uh, no, no, you're right. And, and you know, I'm excited to do this. We talked about doing this in March. And then March came and went, and then April came and went, and then now it's May. But I'm I'm pumped what we did it because last week, of course, we had Robert Enel on. You joined that episode. Um, y'all are friends. Y'all work together. We're all friends. So we we recorded these back to back on a Friday. They call that batching, it's batching recording, Garrett. I had no idea. And you uh, you you uh, provided the recipe for Moscow Mules, which right. we've been enjoying. So so good on you, ma'am. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And, and I know that we are uh, obviously on audio. There's no video here, but I got to say, you got one of the best beards in the law game. Always do. <laughs> I it's, have it's, beard. It's, it's always at the right length. I mean, well, how, I mean, how do you keep it sculpted that way? When, when I ultimately go through puberty and my whole face grows in with hair, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but the sort of half beard it works out for me all right it works out for you i like it have, i mean have you always been a bearded guy yeah uh well you know it was a very long time before you could actually see the the hair on my on my face um so when when you could actually see it uh i decided that was the look i was going to go for um and then uh jenny won't let me shave so there you go uh, that's uh, as we all know that that uh they are undefeated undefeated and uh <laughs> They ask, and That's yes, ma'am. That's, That's what we, we do. do. Well, very good. Well, introduce yourself. I said a little bit, um, but I, like I always do, I mean, tell about where you grew up, background, family, all that good stuff. Sure. So I, I grew up in East Cobb, Marietta. Uh, maybe it might be city of East Cobb soon. We'll have to see how that works out. Uh, went to Walton High School, a bunch of other guests. Graduated, um, gosh, 25 years ago. Just now, passed, on it? 1997. Went up to UGA on the five-year plan which uh, I have no regrets about. Um, the only regret is it should have been six-year plan. Or yeah, you know, it's inter- the interesting thing about Athens is at the end of that fifth year, I was, I was ready to go. I was done. I, not like you. You had law school. You had another yeah, I did seven, so I can't say I was ready to go for five. I, well, I was ready to go, and I got in. You know, you did the Buckhead thing for about six months and went, went to the first football game and said, well, I messed up. Yeah, should have gone. Put, put me back in Athens. Um, but have, have lived in, you know, the Atlanta area since. I've got uh, two daughters, uh, and, and so our house is two daughters, me and Jenny. Uh, live up in Ro- – split time between Roswell and, and Buford, Georgia. Um, been a lawyer since 2007. Have my whole family here, both my brothers, who, who you know well. Oh, yeah. uh, we were 18 months apart each. I'm the middle kid. The Nail Brothers, man. They're legends. Yeah, yeah it explains a lot, uh, being the middle kid, right? Um, and there are, there are a lot of stories that probably shouldn't be told and won't be, won't be told. But my older brother lives uh, a quarter mile from me. My younger brother lives two miles. And you guys go skiing together and hang out together. You mentioned Buford. You have a lake house up there. So, you know, boating, all that kind of stuff. We, we a do a lot together. All our kids, you know, d- at different ages sort of pair off. And it's it's just uh, couldn't, couldn't be more fortunate. Our folks are around the corner. We, we get together all the time. So it's really nice. So I want to start off with a, with, with a, with a question that you're probably not going to be very happy with. But I think it's, it does a great job of explaining, you know, kind of how uh, you, can, you can grow in your life and do better in life. Because you mentioned UGA. And you mentioned five-year plan. You didn't start out too hot that first year of Georgia. I, me- I remember that. 
Well, I, I guess it depends upon how you define hot. Uh, <laughs> you didn't. Yeah, you're right. Fair. <laughs> I started out you're, real hot. You started real hot. You're great. Didn't start out that. No, that, and it actually started before that. I, I went to uh, my parents. You know, they let me go to this concert the day before orientation. It was in Montgomery. Uh, my older brother, my older brother, our, our buddy Matt. We went to this concert. Come home, whatever time in the morning. Get up, drive to Athens, and take all the placement tests. And I, I don't think I, I don't think I answered the math. Uh, I just don't think it. I, I think I skipped it. Just skipped it. And when I got enrolled at didn't school, didn't find it important at the time. Well, when I got enrolled at school, they put me in. It wasn't even math one hundred. It was math ninety. And I was like, what? Did they, cre- did they create a course like, for you? What is this? And I walk in there. And There'll it's be the, a, a classroom of one. You no, know, it's the people you think would be in there. And, uh, and so I, I looked at it. I said, I don't, yeah, man, I don't really need to pay attention here. And we had a project that was worth 30% of our grade. And I came to the conclusion, well, I'm going to get 100 on everything else in the class. And I can't be troubled to do this project. I'll get a 70. I'll pass. It'll be fine. Well, it turns out I didn't get 100 on everything. So I failed the 90 math. Uh, ended up with a 1.67. My for, We were on the quarter system right, back right. then. 1.67 on probation. Uh, not a very good not way a good to, way to come and that was when that was That was Hope Scholarship time. Hope sco- and you got your grades before Christmas break. Right. So, so you had to come home, face your da- parents. My dad's a large man. Yep. That was a, that was a fun conversation to have. Um, and that's how, I, that's how I started school. Now, the reason why I started off like that, because I want to, is it compare and contrast? Is that the right word? Yeah. You're a fan of words. Your law school career ended, off, ended up very well. So from day one, first quarter of freshman year Georgia to graduation from Georgia State Law School are two very different tales. That, that's right. So, so tell us how you finished and graduated from law school. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I, I was fortunate to finish first in my class in law school. Fortunate. I finished, I finished first in my class in law school. That finished, is huge. It is, but I had a lot of help. Okay. You know, there were a lot of people. It's a far cry from 1.67. It's as far as you can get. Um, and people, you know, kind of chuckle at me now and they say, well, we don't know which one's the real you. Um, but it was, uh, it was, you know, I had a lot of hope, a lot of hope and help. Um, and, uh, it was you know, probably my, my highest achievement. It's, it's, it's incredible. So what do you, uh, what do you attest that all seriousness? Like, what do you attest that to? being able to make that kind of a huge swing because clearly you had it in you all along. It was maybe applying yourself. Maybe it was finding something that was of interest to you. Like, like, what do you, how do you explain that? Yeah. You know, I, I was, I've thought about this over the years as to what happened and there's a couple different elements. Number one, uh, 1.67 wasn't me. It isn't anybody you've had on the podcast. It isn't the vast majority of people we run into in any given walk of life. Um, it was an aberration. Um, and it was just a, you know, for lack of better words, a big kick in the old nuts. And, uh, it was a wake up calls, very sobering, not that kind of sobering. Cause I was still a freshman in college. Um, uh, but it was, it was get your act together. You, you got a, a letter from the school that said, you've got one more quarter to get it right. Or you will not going to be a student anymore. And I had, you know, dreams and aspirations and, um, and, and I wasn't going to watch everybody else graduate. So I, I put my head down. I think I was on Dean's list every possible opportunity After from that, there. And, right. and, and look, it, it, I peaked at the right time. You know, a whole lot of luck, some hard work, a lot of good friends, a lot of help, and it, it worked out really well for me. So the, for the parents that are listening here, a lot of, a lot of my friends whose kids are they're now entering into their freshman year of high school or entering into early on in college – and I think that if you're faced with starting off slow or not very well, it's kind of you almost want to give up or it's hard to bounce back. Like, what's your advice for a parent telling their kid, don't let one bad quarter or one bad year ruin the next 50 years of your life? Yeah, that's right. That, and that's a message that, uh, you know, my dad was real helpful in sending that. My mom, uh, you know, reminded me my, my, my dad has an MBA. My mom is a doctor, not a medical doctor, but has a doctorate degree. And, uh, you know, really, really drilled down on what are you doing? You know, you got into the school that's hard to get into. But that's only half the occasion, uh, half the equation, right? The other half is the student. So, you know, the advice would be looking back, um, you know, tough, 
stern but understanding right you're in the city you're by yourself you're making stupid decisions be supportive curb some of the the uh, uh excess uh, and help your student do that but also know hey so you get it. it's not you know we, we all know about the tiger mom right we read about the right. fa- the lady made, became famous a couple of years ago it, that it doesn't have to be like that yeah right exactly right and, and, and when i look back honestly i, I i'm conflicted because if i had it all to do over again yeah i'm not you know what i take my one six seven and all the stories and memories and connections i have and if I can still do what I did now, or would life be different? Well, in May twenty twenty, May May of twenty twenty two, I can tell you that you're doing great. So if that if that was a foundation that led you where you are, then if I were you, I wouldn't want to change a thing. Um, so what made you decide to go to law school? Like I don't even remember when we were both in college. Like the, if we discussed it, like I don't, I don't. Yeah, remember. you know, I, I went up to that orientation, that fateful orientation, and uh, they said, "Well, you're a pre law major. You want to be? A, what, what, why are you doing that?" I said, yeah, that's a great point. Put me in the business school. They hit a button on the computer. I was in the business school. It's almost impossible to get into the business school in Georgia now. Right. It was literally, they pushed a button. So I became a business major. And then as fate would have it, I became a a risk management and insurance major, um, which is insurance and law are synonymous. Very close. close. You know this from your days. And so I came out of college, got a job um, handling litigation for an insurance company. And I... I talked to these lawyers all day long and finally said, you know, I wanted to go to law school. I talked to these lawyers all day. I can do I think this. I, can, I think I can do this, at least as good as some of them. Uh, so let's give it a shot. And um, started applying, sat down and studied for the LSAT. Um, that was hard to do at 23 and living in Buckhead with all of our uh, friends and, just, and work and everything else. But got through it, got into the school I wanted to go to, and um, – that was sort of the you were end. living with Jason Gans time, Derek Locke? Yeah, that's right. I'm sure they were very supportive of very, your studying yes, at night. Yes. Well, they made, <laughs> yeah. they made sure I didn't get a lot of sleep training me for uh, law school. There you go. So Georgia State is a, is a law school. Good experience being able to live in the city. and Yeah, it, it's a very interesting experience. So I worked for two years before law school, and I very quickly settled in with a group of people that had done about the same. So we didn't go straight through. You, know, you go to Georgia, even really Emory. Most of those students tend to go straight through. Um, Georgia State has a wide mix. I, some of my uh, best friends from law school were, were almost twice my age because um, they were doing a second career or whatnot. Um, so it was a great experience. A lot of the guys that I uh, spent time with, we had all done two or three years at various things and came back. Uh, a lot of really, really intelligent people that, went to these great schools and lived in Atlanta and said, I'm not paying for Emory and I'm not moving. And so you had uh, a diversity of background experience. Uh, We had cops, we had engineers, we had people like me who had touches all over the law. So I enjoyed it. It wasn't, there was nothing uh, college about it. It was, it was a job. We went down to one building every day, you studied and you got out of there and that was it. Now you tell a funny story. Um, about when you graduated and were graduating first in your class. And for people that don't know, like that gives you the keys to basically any job you want, right? Well, most jobs. Most jobs. As I found out. As you found out. As you found out. I'm I'm painting with a broad brush. (laughs) Typically, when when you have those type of credentials, you can choose where you want to go. And there are certain big firms in the city that everybody knows of that go and they take the first graduate at Georgia and first at Georgia State and first at Emory of the federal law, clerkships, and all this kind of stuff. Your experience <laughs> was a little bit different. Well, I hate to keep deprecating I, you. Well, but it's, like, it's a fantastic story, uh, for, for, for me at least. Um, so we called this time the Champagne Days. It was 2006. The summer associate classes, which are the intern classes, had 60, 70 Lawyer, lawyers paying, to be in them. And paying a ton of Everybody. Money. I think I had like 30 job offers. But I remember not getting a job offer from the biggest law firm in the city, uh, King & Spalding. That um, was at the time. I don't know if it is now. but that It was like, still is. That, the the, the crim- 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 Yeah, that's yeah. right. And I was talking to my professor, now Dean. I should back to a professor now, Professor Timmons. And I said, ah, you know, Professor Timmons, I, I just don't know. You know. I don't know what to make of this. And Well, she summed it up real quick. She said, well, you know, Garrett. Uh, when you have your standing in class and your background, and you go, you know, you don't get the job offer. It's solely because of because you. Of you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And I just sat there and said, uh, 
Okay, and this was not long after in class for second semester. I said she everybody handed out practice tests from the last year. I said, Professor Timmons, you're gonna hand out um, the second second semester. And she looked at me and goes, Mr. Nail, I've held your hand enough this year. I'm not handing out. I don't know what I did. She had a thing for you, man. I don't know what well, I did. Well, hopefully. But she was fantastic. She was she was my favorite professor, yeah. among my favorite professors. And, and and you know what? I needed that. That was a get your butt back down to mm -hmm. earth real fast because you said something or you had an attitude or you did whatever and you couldn't talk the big boys into uh, to seeing it your well, way. Well, they missed out. You did you did take a job at a big firm, um, Trotman, right? Yeah, Trotman, Trotman Sanders. Sanders. It's, now, it's now another name. It's had a couple of mergers. Yeah, so I think that for people that aren't familiar with the legal industry and, and kind of the landscape is when we say big firm, these are these silk stocking, been around forever, hundreds of lawyers, and they, they have a summer program where they hire the, the top of the top uh, law students and then you know bring them back home and they graduate and it's a prestigious job to get and you work really hard and they pay you really well and you learn a lot um, but people a lot of pe people get burnt out from it that's right I never really worked in that kind of environment so you uh, you said Trotman so talk about starting work there I don't know if, if you clerked there and like the yeah so thing. I did I did a summer associate gig back back during the champagne days uh, I mean Josh it was it was unreal it was you'd go to weddings basically without anybody getting wedding without anybody getting married it was the band the alcohol just nobody getting married right hundreds of thousands of dollars are spent on these summer programs and it's fantastic you're wined and dined you're recruited Forget doing legal work because well, you, don't, you don't do anything you, you don't know what you're doing no. anyway like no, they would never no trust that kind of a, a, a well you're a summer associate so i started there and then i i came on uh as a first year associate and, it, and, you know, you talk about the kind of people that worked there, Troutman Sanders. Sanders was the governor, governor. of Georgia. Mm -hmm. And he gave an opening speech about business development. And he said, look, uh, he, he said, well, my best business development move I did was get elected governor. Thanks, and, governor. And I Good said, call. well, what was plan B? <laughs> because I, I, no one's uh, elected me to anything. Did happy hours work too? Yeah. <laughs> But those are the kind of people that work there. Um, but it was a great. I mean, it was a great environment. It was. It was like sort of boiler room. The movie, real high pressure. I, you know, I tell a story. I was at a Troutman alumni event last night, and we were talking about the old general counsel of the firm. Uh, like my second day there, I'm in the bathroom. There's two urinals, and I walk in, and he goes, uh, "Garrett, there's a partner's urinal, and I'm not at it." You're kidding. And I said, oh, with a, with a dead straight face, I said, sir, I, I, you know, I thought they were the same. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. They, uh, one's lower than the other. And I said, well, sir, uh, I'm the only male associate on the floor. I got it. He said, they didn't cover this in orientation? He's doing this with a straight face. I said, no, but I got it. I'm the only new dude on the floor. He said, Garrett, this isn't just a policy on our floor. You oh, understand what? that, right? And he does it with a straight face. You walk out there not knowing if it's a joke or not. My buddy, the, the next year behind me, talking about this last night, walks in the bathroom. This guy, a year later, is at the non-partner urinal. And he goes, sir. Same shtick. Hey, no, he goes, what do I do here? He goes, well, Matt, step up. I like to give young associates just a little taste of what it's like to be a partner oh one day here gosh. at Troutman Sanders. So the shtick can go oh, both I mean, ways, no, huh? But, I mean, you got to picture this old dude, real serious, the firm's general counsel, and you're uh, you, you know, 20, you know. 25. Yeah, you you have no idea the partner yeah. journal. But... That's that's the kind of environment. Um, that, you know, I, I enjoyed working there. You work with fantastic, fantastic. And, and you know, what everybody hears is the hours and just the billable hours and being there early and staying there late and weekends. Is that really how it was? You, you know, it wasn't awful. Um, my practice was very um, sustained. So we worked long days, but it was it was manageable. You kind of knew you were going to put in 10-hour days. You put in 10-hour days, it's 50-hour weeks. You do it for... You know, 45 weeks a year, you get your 2300 do, do your math and you're You're there. fine. Um, some practices were very up and down. And, and it really mattered who you worked with. Uh, the partners you work for set the tone. Uh, but they're, they're sweatshops, to be sure. So, so last night, um, Troutman does this annual, uh, except for COVID, reunion of alumni. And I, and I saw an old friend of mine. And I think we started with somewhere between 50 and 60 lawyers or Two left. Two left. Is that, two. is that about common? Yeah, it's yeah, it's pretty common. And, and, and when you say left, you've been graduated what fifteen years plus. Fifteen years. And so yeah. it's, it's going from you know junior associate to then senior associate 
to then some sort of partnership, whether it's a non equity partnership or equity. That's right. And and seeing it all the way through. See, so two out of sixty. Through. So that's less than what? Yeah. Five percent. Yeah, those are you know like making a college sports team. Kind so of you, you mentioned last week when we were talking with Robert. Um, by the way, do you like how seamlessly I say last week when it was like twenty minutes ago? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that that you did some bankruptcy work with him. Yeah. Um, is that did you just kind of fall into that? Yeah, it that- was you know, it was real interesting. I did one uh, what was interesting to me, probably nobody else. Um, I did a big project over that summer that I was at Troutman Sanders uh, in the bankruptcy department, and and I liked it. I went and I presented to one of our big clients as a summer associate, and at the end of the summer. Uh, they said, well, what do you want to do? There's two types of law in the big law. Either you're a litigator or you're a transactional lawyer. And I was talking to this guy. His name's Harris. I said, Harris, I kind of want to do deals, and I kind of want to litigate. And all the other people said, well, what are you talking about? You you can't do that. And Harris said, well, that's what we do in bankruptcy. We try cases, and we sell assets, and we sell businesses, and we do crazy transactions, and we do crazy litigation. I said, okay. cool." And he said, Come join our group. You will go to court before any one of the litigators, and you will do a deal before any of your transactional buddies. And and he was right. My my very first practice group leader, Jeff Kelly, I, it took me a week to explain to him that I wasn't a lawyer yet. He kept trying to – you know, you hear lawyers love to tell the old story of, oh, I went to court. We kept trying to send me to court. I said, I'm not a lawyer yet. <laughs> I haven't passed the bar. He's, and he would say – Jeff Kelly, you know, he's a fantastic guy. He's, he's just go do it. Yeah. I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't do it. I, I can't do it. And he was so irritated because he had to go to court. Right. So, I, it, so that's how I fell into it. And um, what they promised me proved true. We were doing deals, and I was in court. All, cut my teeth from day one, um, and it was it was just fantastic. My first job, similar, um, getting early exposure to depositions, trying cases. I worked at Progressive in their in-house counsel department where they just gave us car wreck cases, and we're like, you can't mess them up that bad, so yeah. just go learn. Go figure it out. And that, and that provides such a great – such a better foundation than just sitting there reviewing documents or doing whatever it is else can be done. So, so that's cool that you're able to do that. And then you transition to another big firm, Thompson Hines. Yeah, so this was – this is a um, – it's a smaller, big firm. So Troutman now is, I don't know, they have how many thousand lawyers they have. Um, Thompson Hine at the time had about 400 lawyers. And I had I had met this recruiter, long story short. She called me when I first started at Troutman and said, hey. And I said, ah, I just started. She said, no, no, I'm just introducing myself. And she called me once a year and said, what about going upstairs? I mean, we were in a big building. You're going. I said, no, that's the same job. Why would I start over? She called me one day. She said, I, I have something different for you. So this, uh, there's this partner leaving a big firm, and he's going to start the bankruptcy group at an outpost of a big Midwestern firm. I said, well, where's this partner from? She said, King and Spalding. I said, well, damn it. I'm going to work for King and Spalding. <laughs> whether, one whether, way or the other. other. <laughs> Say, hey, professor. <laughs> <that's> <laughs> really, watch this. Hold my, hold my beer. I went and worked for King and Spalding at another law firm. Uh, <laughs> you get the last laugh. I got the <laughs> – so I his, love it. his name's John Isbell. We all know him. He's, he's a he's an awesome guy. Yeah. And uh, so awesome that um, – I, you know, I remember he said, I couldn't make up my mind. He goes, well, let's go grab lunch at Bones. And he brings my friend Chris uh, and Anna. And um, we go to Bones, and Anna orders a salad. And Chris orders, like, he's a vegetarian. He orders, like, tofu or something. And it comes to me, and I was like, I'm not taking this damn job. I'm at a steakhouse. and Tofu? I'm out. <laughs> Isbell ordered like a fish sandwich because he was on a diet or something. Right. So <laughs> I get, I forgot why well, I got like a piece of chicken. Yeah. I walked back. Well, I'm not taking the job. Yeah, they just to took do. me to a steakhouse. Yeah. And uh, we joke about this to this day. He's like, man, if I'd only known. And, and in true form, I show up on April, whatever it was, April 4th. You know, I got my tie on, go in. They go, oh, Isbell's on spring break this week. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So I oriented myself yeah. for a week. We go back to Bones, order some more chicken and yeah. hang out for a week. <laughs> but we, we worked together. You know, he, he made me a lot of promises about developing my career, developing my network, giving me experience, and, and he lived up to every single one well, of them. I remember them. When, you were, when you were deciding to take that job, and we talked about it, and I'm like, it's a no-brainer. It sounds great. I mean, everything you said checked all those boxes. That's right. Other than, you know, the uncertainty of changing from one firm to the next, which is never easy to do. But that was a great opportunity, and you were there for a long time. Yeah, eight years, made partner, mm-hmm. um, tried a whole bunch of cases, did a whole bunch of deals. You know, a lot of people are trying to go bigger. I, it, I, I put my time in. 
you know, I, I did my work at the biggest of the big law firms. There's a lot of great lawyers there who, who are tremendously successful. It wasn't for me. Um, and this, this was a better fit. Um, and it was just, it was, I wouldn't trade the experience for anything. Fantastic lawyers, a number of fantastic friends there, experiences that, um, you know, I, I can't even reduce to telling you guys about, but they're just wonderful memories. It provided such a good foundation for all the stuff that you're doing now. Now, when I introduce you, Thompson Hines is not the firm that I introduced you at working at. You, you're, you're a name partner at a different firm. Yeah. So, so I, I remember that decision too. Like what went into. I think leaving, we went to lunch. We did. Yeah. Leaving like this established, you're a partner. Like that's everybody's dream, right? Become a partner at this big firm. Um, and then you had this other opportunity. So take it from there. Yeah. So um, you're, you're the theme that you've, you've raised, I've, I've listened to virtually every one of your podcasts. And, 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 and one of the themes that I hear throughout is uh, a sort of unexpected opportunities and taking advantage of them. And I remember your buddy, uh, Hammers, by the way, who I have – one of the reasons I'm here today is because I got a Hammers nail. I mean, we, gotta, we have to make this law firm, right? Is that – that has to happen. So to do that, uh, he's going to do the NIL deal with MC Hammer. And you got to throw in half of it, yeah. and then the hammer hammer's hits the nail. Hammer's nail. I hammer's nail. I mean, nail. I mean it's, it has to happen, right? Hey, he'll be listening, and <laughs> hey, I can connect the two of you. Hammer, hammer meets and hammer nails. Do it. So he's a great guy. Yeah, he? fantastic. And and he talked about unexpected. And a lot of your guests have talked about unexpected opportunities. And and that's that's where my um, that's where my my current job came from. I I went. It, most people that know me went. No, I went through a, a very long, protracted, litigious divorce. And at the end of it, um, I sort of, you know, came out somehow uh, with my head above water, uh, probably barely. And I was just thinking about what I'm going to do. You know, I was work was fine. It was rewarding, but maybe it wasn't everything I wanted. And uh, John, my partner at the time, said, hey, I've, I've kind of got this opportunity to go do something really cool with uh, with a, one of my big clients. And we, we together had this other opportunity. So I, I called my lawyers and I said, hey, I, what do I do here? Like, is, you know, I don't know. You guys know me. And they said, well, let's go to lunch. Well, we haven't caught up. We'll talk about when it. When you say law, your lawyers, your my lawyers. My divorce lawyers. Yeah. Yeah. Who I'd gotten to. They had seen every bit of the worst of me. Uh, maybe the best of me as well. Mostly the worst. And uh, so we go to lunch and I'm just thinking, yeah. And then they said, well, turns out we're going to separate from our bigger firm. And why don't you come work with us? You're like, whoa. Okay. <laughs> Didn't say well, that immediately I said, uh, y'all remember who I am, right? Right. Like, you remember what we went through for the last two years? You've seen all of it. You've seen all of it. And they said, yeah, you're better now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've rehabilitated we've you. you. Yeah, we've yeah. watched you come back to earth, and we like how you practice law. Uh, it was like I said, they, they got to see a lot of different sides of me. And, and so I said, well, I, you know, I don't, what, are you, what are we talking about here? I said, well, we need another partner. That's you. Uh, we have um, unlimited work from day one. We've already got an office set up. We've already got a website locked down that has your name in it. Um, you can do whatever kind of work you want. Uh, and um, we're, we're funded. We're, we're ready to go. That's and I, well, I said, well, what's the, what's the, what's the catch? Sure. There wasn't one. It just wasn't. We I started on a April first, I think, and you know, did worked on my first case that day and I was three and a half years well, three I guess three years and a month ago and we're running full speed. So to put that in context, I don't think I know of another example similar where you, you know, a law firm that someone was a client in that was also a lawyer then gets invited after being represented by this firm to be a partner of the firm. Have you, do you know of any other examples well, of that? Only in-house counsel at a big firm. Only in-house counsel. But no, oh, yeah, yeah, and nobody yeah. that was me during this litigation. I, you know, it's, I laugh about it a lot because it's sort of, you know, it's sort of, is it shallow how? It's like, what exactly did y'all see? Not and to it, mention an area of law that you've never really done. Well, I mean, with the, the firm itself. Yeah, the firm, so I had, I had become involuntarily. Uh, on your own case? On my own case, a right. divorce lawyer. I, I learned over two years everything there was to learn. I was doing a lot of my own work. I was doing research. 
it was almost as much a fight between me and my lawyers about what we were going to file as it was between my lawyers. And, and, and that's probably what they saw. They're like, this guy is coming up with some really good approaches, these cases. Different. And different. Different. And he's come up with some good theories, and my God, it's working. Uh, we need him. We, so, we, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, and, and the, the deal was come on over, and you can do whatever you want. You know, we just we think we we think we'll have a real nice partnership, and uh, and it was it was really just that simple. So the firm, um, how many y'all? Five lawyers, six, six, six lawyers, lawyers. Okay, over in Vinings, um, you have a as I said in the beginning, a a wide spectrum of cases that you work on. I mean, I've worked on cases with you with personal injury and with family law, and you still do bankruptcy with Robert. You know, what we're talking about and just anything. So how would how would you sum up what your law practice is? Now? Yeah, you know, it's uh. I, I, the majority of my practice is, is helping uh, people with means work out their problems, whether that's um, getting them through a very complicated divorce with a lot of assets, whether that's doing all their corporate work, whether that's selling a company for them on the legal side at their retirement, um, whether that's litigating, whether that's serving is just to sell, you know, a lot of what I do is that, you know, the companies go and hire the big firms and I represent the individuals. Right now, um, my practice is, I, I won't assign percentages. I do a lot of corporate work. Um, selling a gym as we speak. I just sold a, a manufacturing business. Um, I have done a lot of PE investing deals, setting up companies, advising on fiduciary duty. I have two or three fiduciary duty litigation cases right now. That's a big piece of my practice. Um, and then I lump into that the, the bankruptcy restructuring work. Uh, still work with John Isbell a whole lot. We tried a case last year. Uh, we're appealing one right now where it's two Roberts uh, battling, you know, and the judge picked one. Um, and then a big, big part of my practice is the, uh, the, the family, the domestic side of the, of the law. So if I can, I want to focus a little bit on that. Sure. Because um, that's not something that we've talked about on this podcast before, but something that everybody is kind of familiar with, right? At least from a very high level. Everybody knows somebody's gone through divorce or that's had right. a custody issue, know that. So, you know, it, they always seem to be contentious, right? There's a, there's a problem that brings people to get divorced. If there wasn't a problem, then they wouldn't need you. That's, um, that's right. So, so you're interjecting yourself, being hired and to, to just come into the, one of the hardest situations. Um, talk a little about the nuts and bolts of a family law case, like what you see your role as, how you can kind of stay removed from the in, in fighting with the family and just how you approach these cases. Yeah, they're, they're incredibly difficult, virtually all of them. Uh, very high pressure, very high stakes. Um, when I'm doing the corporate work, obviously your corporate contacts want to win and prevail, whatever it is. Want to close the deal, they want to succeed in the litigation, but... A lot of the time, it's business. At the end of the day, it's just money. It's business. This is very personal. And, um, you know, I was thinking about it. Uh, a couple of words I've heard a lot in the last three years that I never heard before are, okay, I trust you. And those are the best words you can hear and the scariest. Yep. Because that means it's on you. It's maybe on the, your shoulders. the head that holds the crown. Oh, man. And let me tell you— um, you know, my view is it's a lawyer's obligation to get invested in that case and to care about your client. Some some will make it real hard for you to care about them. They do everything they can to alienate you. Um, but if you can't do that, you you need to move on from being a lawyer. And so when you when you you know you you need to be invested in and in, uh, but but what do we what do we what do I try to do? I try to get my person to the end as fast, efficiently, and painlessly as I can. And we do that a lot. And a lot of times there's just nothing you can do. To, you got to go try the case. I'm sure there's people that come in and they just want the fight because they've been cheated on or lied to or all the above. And they say, F that person. I hate them. Da, da, da. And all the time. And so what is the kind of talking to that you give them the words of wisdom, seeing this day in and day out to kind of walk them off that ledge? Or do you let them just, hey, get it out, vent. And then as the process goes, we'll kind of yeah. take you down a notch or two. Yeah. yeah. So uh, attorney and counselor. Right, that's what we're called, attorneys and counselors. A whole lot of the counseling side of things. Probably a lot uh, of listening too. A lot of listening, and people want to be heard, and they have a right to be heard. And you know, the first thing I tell them is, I'm a very expensive counselor. Counselors are about a quarter of the rate. But I'll listen. And better, <laughs> and better. But if you call me at night and I'm sitting around doing nothing but watching the Braves game, and you want to talk, I'll take your call. 
You tell me whatever you want. I'll give you my advice. Um, you know, the domestic bar is a real interesting group of lawyers. It's a tight, small group, isn't it? Yeah, it's, you know, um, I'm, I'll leave it at that. Uh, they're different from the lawyers I was with last night at, at Troutman Sanders. And it, 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 who's on the opposing side dictates a lot of what happens in a case. Um, and, and I don't doubt that a lot of these lawyers believe in, in what they're doing. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it, it can create problems. So what I, I tell a client and I'm not sure every, where I'm going with this is I'm not sure every lawyer has this mentality. My mentality is it's your case. I'm always going to tell you my honest opinion. I'm going to work hard for you. You're going to make the decision. I'm, I might try to talk you out of some things. But ultimately, I'm not going to make you do things. And I think lawyers sometimes make their clients do things. We see that in the injury cases that it becomes about the lawyer and about being the big verdict or getting themselves in the paper when the client didn't really want that. They didn't want to get a trial. They were happy with the offer that was made and put this behind them. But the ego of the lawyer takes over and they make it their case when it's not. Yeah, we see that. Um, it, but there's a lot of good lawyers. I mean, you're, you're doing, you know, you're, you're, you're putting in work on these cases. They're very difficult. You real stakes your children. You know, how many any, times the, the, the stakes can't get any bigger? Yeah, how many times do you heard at the end of the day? What are you left with? When you ask me if would you get the one six seven again? Well, I have a bunch of memories, and and at the end of life, what we're left with is memories, right? Right, friends, family, and memories, and so it's a real fight, and and people um, dig in, um, and and we do. We have all sorts of different uh, methods we deploy to try to get it to an end. Uh, we try a lot of cases. We I don't want to try them. Um, sometimes you just have to, uh, but, but to answer your question, um, it, you know, we do a lot of listening. Um, and as I said earlier, some of the most rewarding words, Jenny said this to me one night when somebody came up and said, yeah, well, I finally was able to have a good night's sleep after talking to you. And that's when, okay, this is what I went to law school for to, to, you know, but then the pressure side is, well, now I got to deliver on that. Um, so you have to be careful in the advice you give. You have to be reasonable. And we spend a lot of time mediating between our own clients and what the other side's doing. And ultimately you're counseling them that I imagine that a compromise they can come up with amongst themselves is usually the better outcome than leaving it in the hands of, of a judge. They could go either way. You don't put somebody on the stand and cross examine them with everything you know about them and have that person then hug it out with you at the end and say, loved it when you brought up that personal text message. That was so what that doesn't happen. Yeah, you, you know, that just doesn't happen. So I, we try to avoid it at all costs. Sometimes yeah. you can't. And as you go through the discovery process, which in a lawsuit, it's exchanging information, exchanging documents, some voluntary, some involuntary. I mean, I'm sure that y'all have to hire investigators and, and get cell phone records, things of that nature. So what are some of the things, if you can share, I mean, be, be anonymous, of course, but you must see just some crazy stuff. I, you know, uh, I'm not surprised by anything anymore. Um, you know, people are going to do what they're going to do. Um, the sort of audacity that some people have and, and what, you know, people always assume it's like the, you know, who's sleeping with who. Well, that's that's everywhere and everything. And that loses its luster. That's just the tip of the iceberg. It loses huh? its luster pretty quick because it's all the same, right? I mean, there's interesting ones. Like we had a guy that, that got caught cheating by a sleep number bed. Oh, they didn't put it back to the right number? No. Uh, the, it monitors like heart rate. And things like that. And no. somebody was out of town and there were two heart rates. And Technology it was like, <laughs> strikes again. <laughs> and it was, hey, man, uh, if you've ever read, you may have in your practice read a PI report. I, reading a PI report about somebody else makes me feel sick to my stomach. Totally. But the information they're able to gather. I mean, you, the conversations that are recorded in the, in the seemingly never inside somebody's house or whatever. And I don't know what the private investigators do. Uh, but you read these reports and you just think, man, I, you know, God, like, wow, uh, exposed like that. But you see money being hidden, abuses, you know, um, what, what the general, out, what groups of friends have no idea what's happening among people. It's, it's not shocking anymore, but it's, you know, we know how to deal with it at this point, but it's sort of, you know, nothing surprises you anymore. And you just, yeah, kind of, ah, can you believe? Yeah. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I've seen it all. So I used to do- You've some, seen it too. Yeah, I've seen it too. And, and I used to do some um, some garden ad litem work. We yeah. Had to, we had to do some pro bono hours at the firm, which was great. I think everybody should do pro bono hours. And one of the things that I did 
was guardian ad litem, which were the court would hire you to represent the best interest, best interest of the child. That's right. When the parents are, are having their thing. And we wouldn't represent mom or dad. It was just looking out for the, the kid and making reports to the court about what we think is in the best interest. That's right. Um, do you do any work of that or do you work we don't, with guardians? You sort of, if, if we work with guardians and if there's a contested custody case, there's going to be a custody value or a guardian appointed almost always. Um, and you know, a custody evaluation is done by a child psychologist or a psychologist who's trained to do that. A guardian is usually a lawyer. And so it's two very different experiences. Um, and, and they, the vast majority of them are doing what they think's right. But you know, uh, what do they know more than, I mean, what did you know about what was best for the kids better than you had some training you had, you know, Obviously, with all due respect, but you kind of said what you thought was right. Yeah, yeah, and, exactly. And that was the end of it. So they're just they're very tough cases because people are fighting over. Like like I said, what, what do people always talk about it when they near the end of their life? It's their family, it's their kids, and 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 if you don't fight, you know we see um, we see the bad stories on the backside. You know the people that go years without speaking to their parents or their kids and. You know, how often that's on under false pretenses or mistaken and what you can and can't say to the kids and who's who's better and who's not. No, you know, this guy was drinking beer at the pool on Saturday. Well, if he wasn't in a custody fight, yeah. he'd be a good dad right. because he was at the pool with his kids on Saturday. Right, right. And so it's, I mean, there's a lot of double standards. You, you always hear about they went through a messy divorce, right? That's yeah. where we hear messy divorce. And no one, I guess, starts out with that intention. Yeah, some and, people and, do. And well, <laughs> I guess, I guess no lawyer should start out with that intention. Some lawyers do. Um, I think that what you said earlier was that you want to avoid that if you can. We try and, and to. And so one of the words that I always think of when I think about your lawyering, st- lawyering style is like very creative. I think that you're very creative in coming up with approaches to the case and then more importantly, the solution to the problem. Is that is that kind of what you try to do? I, I do. And and it's, uh, it's it's sometimes for me personally been taken out of context because there's a, there's a just like in baseball, there's the unwritten rules. Right, everybody knows them. Everyone follows them until somebody says, "I'm not going to follow them." There's a whole bunch of unwritten rules. I, I don't acknowledge them. I don't respect them. I don't follow them. Right. And so, if the law tells me I can do A, B, C, and D, and it's advantageous for my client to do A, B, C, and D, I'm going to do it. Yeah, Civil Practice Act says this. I'm going to do that. Show me a case but, that says but, I but, can't. But I do guess this. the 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 old garter establishment says, "Well, that's not really how yeah, the way that's things how are we done. do things." Well, that's fine. This is how I'm going to do it. And it comes across. I mean, people have told me, oh, you're so aggressive. And I said, do you know me? Yeah. Like, that's not – I'm creative, and it's it's mistaken as aggressive. Um, but then we have a lot of cases where, you know, um, you know, at the risk of setting – needing to set modesty aside, um, you know, I'm, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about things. And so if you get under my skin – you got the next week. I'm gonna figure out how to get back under your skin, and I, and then I do it if I can, if within the bounds of the actual rules, not your unwritten rules. No, that, um, that, I do it, and and I've had a lot of success doing that. And, I, and so then people, hey, you pulled this off. I want to hire. You, and then I look, at, and then these you know these clients come to me. And say, this is what I want to do, and you can do it. And you look at it, you say, under no circumstances, am I gonna do this? I'm glad you think I will. But what what you heard about me was. Limited to that set of circumstances and, and how that came into being. So my follow-up question has nothing to do with all the smart things you just said. It, it has to do with, you mentioned you made a baseball reference. Yeah. And the guys in the chat that we're in that's very active every day, they always give you crap about your baseball skills growing up. Yeah, it's, and it's, like a swinging bunt or... Patented it. And, so, uh, so <laughs> I, I mean, I, I know the story kind of, but why are they always give me hell about that? Yeah, so we had, uh, we had our, uh, a good friend of ours, Brian Glenn. Uh, sadly passed away years and years ago. Cheers to Brian. Cheers to Brian. Um, he was among the best storytellers I've ever met. And the reason his stories were so good is they were completely fabricated. <laughs> they weren't rooted in any truth. So he invented... Never let facts get in the way of a good story. So he invented that all through Little League. How many years? I mean, you're in it right now. What, what is it? Six, six seven, eight years? Higher. That I never hit the ball out of the infield. Okay. Now, I'm not sure I hit it out that many times. Right. But I know I at least hit it out. Okay. A few so, times. Th- so that's where that so was. So then he relabeled it the swinging bunt. And then I just I became the guy that did a swinging bunt. Well, just like King and Spalding, you know, being able to pull off the swinging bunt now, it gets you paid in the major <laughs> leagues. <laughs> right. I, I, no one sent me a royalty check for isn't that. It, isn't it funny, though, that, that that has stuck, man, because. Not a, not a couple of weeks go by without somebody bringing yeah. that up one way or the other. I well, mean, it's ba- you know it's like like all you know stereotypes and whatnot. It's, it's based on a little bit of uh, 
foundation it, personally um i wasn't a home run hitter we'll put it to you that so way. staying on staying on the baseball theme got me thinking that uh you were one of the first adopters of the Braves bullpen last year the well, night shift loved and it you were the very first guy that was like all in on those dudes so, well i mean well first of all for a minute there i was the only person in the entire world the that only like that liked luke yeah jackson yeah. the only person yeah, you I like, mean, even Luke didn't like himself. He came in with a different facial hair. He came in with a different haircut. He's a closer. He's a middle reliever. He's a star. He's he couldn't figure what himself. What attracted out. you to Luke? Oh man, I well, I mean, he was such a he's such chaos, right? Um, but th- this is what it, this is what it came down to. I, I was thinking about this. You know, he just had surgery, and, and we hope he gets better. Um, if, you know, in, in Major League Baseball now, you see every facial expression. And they always zoom in on the face, and he's sweating. And you just looked, you saw the pain on his face with every, I mean, he looked like a dude that, like an like a Air Force fighter pilot about to pull the, like, he pull the ejection. He, he didn't know what was coming. And he was scared, looked scared out of his mind. But you could tell he wanted it. Like, desperately wanted it. And every time he got up there with that pitch, whatever facial hair he had, his long hair, short hair, his face never changed. Like, he legitimately wanted it. He wasn't mailing it in. He went, he was such a competitor. Well, he wanted it. He wanted it so bad. And then, I mean, you got to remember, 2019 was our closer. Right. 2020, we didn't bring him to the playoffs. We sent him down to the minors and, for and, the playoffs. Yeah, and then last year. He well, and then a- last year, he was fantastic. So he pitched in the NLDS. Yes, the NLDS, he pitched in either three or four games. Zero ERA. Yeah, he was the man. In the World Series, zero ERA. And, you know, our man AA, uh, Alex Anthropoulos, put together this, this uh, middle, middle pitching really rotation. Important. And, and I, look, I always root for the underdog. I, criminals that everybody hates. You know, I'm secretly happy when they get acquitted. Jose Baez, the worst lawyer in the world. No one can get a murder conviction on this guy. Right, right. I'm always worried. Who, who you got now, Jose? Aaron Hernandez? Let's, let's get a not guilty. Let's do it. Uh, so I'm always rooting for the underdog. Dude, the, the, the middle relievers, a perennial underdog. Yeah, of the team. They're, 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 a, they're, a, they're a resume cover letter. They, they, only bad things can only happen. Only bad things can happen. Just no like one, a cover no, letter. No, only one gives, bad no one gives them credit for a clean six no, you, you go three up, three down, it's eh. You know, they're they, supposed to. There's no bobblehead. Yeah. There's no famous numbers. You don't get your number on the outfit. You can't even name the middle relievers from our heyday of the Braves. Avery, Smoltz, Glavin, Matt. We can name all. The, you can't name. I can name. I can name like Alejandro Pena, a closer. The closer. But, the, but you, the middle you, you relievers. So so you. But so this is. I mean, this is making sense to me now. Like you were night shift the minute it came out. You got the gear, the well, shirt, yeah, the these, whole well, thing. These guys. I mean, so Alex Antarpo has put together this lineup, right? And it was every night. Luke Jackson. Matzik, the closer was mentor. Mentor was in there, and the closer, you know, sometimes they mix it up a little bit. But they got into this rhythm um, where they became a thing, like out of nowhere. They were like, you know, the 1980 uh, uh, hockey team. I, you, everyone, know, you know, those dudes party too. Oh, after I mean, look the, at them. The I mean, Luke Jackson. You got Matzik. Is I think he was retired for a little bit there. Mentor. You know, they had background stories and there were the underdogs they had the most fun during the parade too just deleting beers left and right throwing beers off oh the absolutely floats. well because and i was sitting next to aj mentor at the bar uh after that parade and and he had just people all around i remember looking at him and just thinking hey you know soak this up buddy because you're going you're going to go back to an anonymous middle reliever who just loses games and i love it so i, I and that, when i saw the interview tyler massick they, so they started calling themselves the night shift yeah and they were like we're not the starters nobody cares about us um, and I was sitting at home during the World Series, um, and they asked Matzik, they said, hey, you've pitched like eight, eight of the last nine games. Uh, what are you going to tell Snit when he calls on you? And he looked with the greatest facial expression I've ever seen. He goes, boys are ready. The night shift's always ready. I got on my phone immediately, and I was go. like, trademark this. Trademark it's this. done. It's the best. And I said, you know, this is going to be – this is." and then I woke up the next day, and there were shirts Everybody's and bobbleheads, yeah, and I yeah. was like, no, F that. I called it you first. Did. You did. And, but they were fantastic. I mean, the whole thing. Well, I mean, it was such an Atlanta thing. Like, the middle relievers are the heart of our team. They don't have the yellow armbands. They don't have gold chain. They don't have any of that. They're just blue collar. Get, get but they got it done. They brought that World Series home for us. And Luke Jackson, the most hated baseball player in all of Atlanta history, is loved. He's, is, he's, it th- throws a zero ERA yeah. for 
eight games. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he did have one bad game against the Dodgers. He had like they all had bad games against the Dodgers. But hey, we're we're, we're champions now. I want to shift a little bit because we're talking about um, talking about them drinking beer and uh, a brewery is something you've done too. Like yeah. aside, aside from being a lawyer, Gate City Brewery is uh yeah you, so you, yeah you take to t- yeah explain what that is yeah and- it's 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 a it's a microbrewery uh in roswell georgia where i live um it like all fun business stories it started in a garage um and it was just a, a dream of a couple neighborhood guys um we put it together we had two guys that knew how to make beer and me knew how to drink beer and uh write write things so wait, let me let me stop you. So people are always sitting around, coming up next big idea. I can do this. I can do that. I can make beer. I can make whiskey, whatever. Like that's what y'all were doing. Like we can do this. And we're yeah, like, well, let's figure it we out. We had a couple beers on. You know how good they were. People told us they were good. Uh, came up with the name. We um, a, a very good friend of mine, Rye Wait, is uh, he does all this branding for all these huge brands. He came on sort of pro bono, like you talked about earlier. By the way, I do a lot of involuntary pro bono work. I didn't plan on it being pro bono at first. Um, I don't know if you ever have that experience. All the time. But it all, it, yeah, it all, it all ends up being it, paying it, forward. It, that's right. It all works out. That's right. Um, and so anyways, we put it together. And, and what was a really interesting part of the story, um, two, two quick stories. We, we didn't have anywhere to brew. Seems like a pretty big necessity. Pretty big necessity. So we tried everything. We wanted to put it in this guy's outhouse. We wanted to do this. And the city rot. No, no, no. You've got to be a real business. you got to have... It's managed by the same people that manage restaurants. You got to get your little grade and uh, all that stuff. And so we we had some friends over at Reformation Brewery, great, fantastic guys. And they said, well, you can, you know, you you can use our stuff after hours and we'll rent it out to you. And I found this little loophole in Georgia law that allowed you to do this. And so I wrote up this big contract. We negotiated. We got it signed. I sent it off to the the licensing people, they wrote back, yeah, this works. I mean, I bronzed that thing because it should have never been, should have never been allowed. It violated all kinds of the reasons, but they said it was allowed. Hey, we're good. I printed that email, framed it, and we brewed over there for... Um, What's the process of brewing beer? Yeah. Like, dumb it down. Yeah, yeah. So you get real hot water. Mm-hmm. You put some grains in there. There's a reaction that washes the sugar off the grains. Um, it's a process takes a couple hours. There's a whole process of washing the grain down and you get that slurry of, of, of liquid, sweetened liquid. It doesn't taste very good. You then put it into a fermenter and you add yeast and the yeast eats the sugar that's been washed off the grains and that creates alcohol. Then you have a flat beer and you run carbonation through it and that carbonates and that's the long very long process and so what equipment is needed to do that yeah so you got to have big vats um to, to be able to hold you know think about a beer you know it takes up a lot of space and so you have massive vats and it's it's measured by barrels how many barrels can you make on one batch what do you think the reaction was when the first people figured out how to make beer well it was mead is what they made um yeah fantastic they're like Holy cow! This is amazing. Well, I like, mean, I gotta tell everybody about this. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. You take this little. I mean, you take this little drink. I'm gonna feel All your problems go away. But mead is what you know. It was uh, the rumor has it. It was a basket of grains that was rained on. See, I don't think I know. I don't think I know what that is. Mead is. Uh, it's like a very syrupy beer. There's a meadery in Roswell, actually. Okay. Um, but I mean, look, they make it in prison out of expired fruit. Sure. I mean, like the. Per- <laughs> I mean, the first people that like realized they did this, drank it, and then felt like that. They're like, holy moly. I mean, think about it. They used to do surgery with whiskey. Uh, Braveheart. I know it's a movie, but they give the guy a shot of whiskey, and then where he got stabbed with the arrow. I mean, all that's based in some yeah, that's, reality. That's so, all right, sorry, sorry to, to throw you off. Yeah. So, so you, 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 you had this batch going. Uh, you figure out how to brew beer. What's next to bring it to a concept that's actually a real thing? Yeah, so we're making beer at our friend's brewery and, and we decide, Hey, we need to open up a shop. And we had a lot of long, somewhat contentious meetings over the kitchen table about where we're going to put this thing. And I was a, a bankruptcy lawyer at the time. And so we had this real estate brokers, you guys are signing personal guarantees and you're, you're putting down. And I said, oh, we're not doing any of that. I remember the guy looking at me, then you ain't ever going to have a lease. And I said, all right. Sounds like we got a challenge. So we met this fellow well, that's named. That's the theme here. Yeah. Challenge. Yeah, you. yeah. Well, so we met this guy named Jimmy, 
Jimmy's a pretty famous landowner in Roswell, and he owned uh, he owned a bunch of land downtown, and he had this old uh, car repair shop right on Magnolia Street where the brewery is now. And the way you worked with Jimmy is you went you, you went to his yard, and you drank Bud Heavy, and you sat in a chair and you talked to him about Fords. He's a big Ford guy. I like I like the way Jimmy conducted. You talk to him for an hour or two. You, you make a little bit of progress. You leave. You come, come back. back. And Do you bring the six-pack of Bud Heavy? Yeah, or has he got just I ready? always had some because uh, he's a Budweiser guy. And um, and then our, our friend Mike Chandler used to go spend the most amount of time with him. One day, Jimmy goes, I just don't think that boy's got the gas to get it done. So we started calling him the gas man. The gas man. We're like, gas man, go make good. this happen. Yeah. And it took months. And then he's just, Robert knows all about leases. I mean, a commercial lease is 40 pages. It's got everybody paying, tenant improvement, all this. He had a real short lease that said, I'm not paying for anything. You're paying for everything, and I make all the rules. Yeah. Take it or leave. And we pinched our nose, and we signed the lease and started. So what year was this? 14 or 15, probably okay. 15. Because now the space in downtown Roswell. Fantastic. Right, like the first thing you see. Fantastic. I mean, it was it was an hour away from being in an industrial park or in Woodstock, not Woodstock, but it's somewhere else. Ross was a perfect place for it to be. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, what, in in the, in the, uh, the theme was we really want to be a part of the community and, and I ultimately got out of the brewery. Um, but the two guys that are the, the primary operators now, they're all about the community. And that's what, that was our dream. That's what we wanted. I mean, they're the, everything to do with the school, with the government, the city, they're all over. And is that every, played out? Is that is that absolutely everything they do has a tie to, you know, giving to the community and being being. I mean, that's where you go. It's where the Rotary Club after party is going to meet there. It's yeah. just it's the place to be. So the, the physical space, of course, is awesome. But then bottling it and getting it into restaurants. I mean, I remember the first time I went to like Mellow Mushroom or something. I'm like, holy cow, Gate City beer, like it's on tap. Like how how do you do that? Yeah. So it's all sold through a distributor. So the distributors. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think each of the gates at UGA football stadium is named after a distributor um, because they make that much money. Um, the uh, so they have the exclusive right to distribute your product. Basically, when you when you come out with a new product, you sign over for life the the right to distribute that product. Right. And under Georgia's law, you can't go into a retail establishment with a keg on your back and as a manufacturer and say, "Buy this from me." It's got to be bought from a distributor. So you sell to the distributor. Distributor puts a markup on it and then delivers it to the restaurant. So, I mean, the irony was the restaurant right next door to Gate City was buying beer that had been shipped to South Atlanta to come right back. To come right back. Yeah. Um, so, but that's that's a very complicated, contentious issue. You've, if you followed it at all, there's been Georgia's like most things, it's the number forty-five or forty-six most favorable state for uh, small-owned. Uh, we got distilleries in the mix and wineries now too. Wineries have the, they have all these exceptions as a farm business, but um, it, it, the, the legislature has come forward to allow some some self sales. But it's um, y- you know it's uh, you know it's people are adopting their local brewery. Well, right? it's cool. I mean, we had our twenty year high school reunion there. Yeah, I mean, it's neat. I wasn't there. But. It's <laughs> but still the fact that it was there is just neat. So, yeah. is there a story behind the name? Yeah, so it was named after uh, Gate City's Atlanta's historic nickname back it that. was it was terminus at one point i did know marthasville that. um but gate city is the gateway to the south right the phoenix rising so we so the phoenix is the logo and and we spent a lot of time working on the name um and we thought um you know hey in in 18 whatever when after sherman burned down atlanta atlanta became this this sort of bright spot in the south and you think about it now in 2022, virtually everything that, that goes to the South comes to Atlanta, whether it's a train, something on a ship, a plane, business. You know, Atlanta is is the bright spot. And so it's the gateway to doing anything you want to do in the South. And we thought with the Phoenix Rising, then our message was we're going to be all about the community. And it just really dovetailed nicely. Smart. And, and I thought it was really cool. I love it. Well, I, I, I enjoyed drinking it, so thank you all for putting it together. Uh, dude, you are you are the the jack of all the trades, man. <laughs> yeah, well. I mean, you know, all different types of law, brewing beer. You got this love for the middle relievers for the Braves. I mean, like, it's good stuff, man. I don't know how you can fit it all into your day or your week. You're you're a, you're a lake guy. We even touched on that. Yeah, I love the lake. Lake is a, is a COVID development. We uh, Jenny and I decided um, we're going to buy a COVID boat. 
A COVID boat. But we bought it before everybody else bought a COVID boat because they got really, well, really you were, freaking your expensive. Your COVID boat is now worth about 20% more, uh, it is. more than someone when you buy it. If someone buys it, it'll be perfect because it's for sale right now. But we um, yeah, another great story. Uh, we So we were, were spent all of 2020 on the lake. And, and there was no COVID on Lake Lanier. The, it, it, never, it never made its way to It lake. never existed. You, all the bars were open. Uh, it's a funny thing. The people of Lake Lanier, you could have a whole episode on. It's, a, it's a, I mean, it's like a TV show. Maybe, maybe, maybe we should. So you know, them. Ozark is filmed on Lake Lanier. Mm-hmm. It's it's so it's Ozark in real life. You've got dudes with unbelievable amounts of money who. It's just it, it's a fascinating scene. So Any we powers ever visit Lake Lanier? I, I mean, it seems like his right up his alley, right? So we spent most of twenty twenty. All kinds of different friends came with us, and we got to know the lake a little bit. We got to know boating a little bit, and. Um, decided we were going to um, want to get a place up there. So uh, COVID, COVID houses were super expensive and they were way out of our price range. And we're sitting at home on a Friday night and uh, we remember these Facebook groups for, for Lake Lanier people. And this, this dude posts a picture of his backyard. It says, house for sale, open house tomorrow. We're like, well, let's talk. What are you doing tomorrow, Gene? Nothing. Well, we, well, we texted him. We said, well, hey, we're going to be up there anyway. So we came by. There's people everywhere. He's a twin. So his brother's there, and you never you know which one you were talking to. My kids are in the hot tub. I'm in the backyard. The realtor's got this, this pontoon pulls up, and he's like, are you here? It was almost like the scene from uh, Old School. He's like, are you here for the party? And I was like, I don't know. Maybe. Well, I don't know. It's, Should I be? <laughs> and then the, the owner of the house comes over, and he's like, who are you? And this guy's like, I was, you know, someone said Johnny said to show up. And he's like, damn it, Johnny. Yeah. Why is my house the me? I don't even know who this guy is. Right. So we put an offer on the house. There's was a little bit of a bidding war. And I, I said, Jane, we got to write a letter. And gotta, she, she said, what are you doing? I said, you gotta, we got to write a letter. Yeah. So our friend Wes Busby grew up in that. He was with us that day. Mm-hmm. He grew up. His grandparents had a house, like 10 houses. There's your hook. Well, we put that in. Oh. Destiny. The yeah. kids have already picked out their bedroom. They've already gotten in the hot tub. And I'm thinking, why is this dude going to take our low offer? Well, he accepts it. And it turns out he was interviewing us, unbeknownst to us, because oh, really? he, lit, he had bought the house next door. He wanted to. So he wanted to see who his neighbor was, and that's pretty cool. So he's that's become. Pretty cool. he's that's become, brilliant, actually, because it's funny that that you say that because the house next door to us just went for sale, and they're going to knock and, it down and, and build something know, up. And you want to know who? And, it is. and the, the same builder who bought our house is building that one. And so Dana texted him, who is and it? goes goes, listen, man, uh, Rez is the builder. Listen, we have right of first refusal on who you sell this to. And we want this, 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 this. We're going to interview them. And then and only then will we give you the permission to sell to them. He well, writes back. He's like, yes, ma'am. You know? I mean, it's funny, but uh, it's, we, we, didn't, we weren't the top bidder. Um, in a very small world, a client of mine was the guy we were bidding against. I had no idea until weeks later. Good he old- said, I was trying to buy this house. I was like, it wasn't. And he said, did y'all buy it? I was like, shit, we did. So good on that guy for looking past a few extra dollars to get himself some enjoyment as neighbors. And we hang out That's all great. the time. He's a That's fantastic awesome. guy. Um, good story. I love I love stuff like that. Um, well, good deal, man. Maybe next time we'll do the podcast from the back deck. All are the, welcome. Of, of, all of are the welcome. Lake. So, hey, thank you for, for coming here today. I had a great time hanging out with you and, and Robert a week ago, but really an hour ago. Uh, <laughs> it's all good, man. So t- tell everybody, hopefully no one listening is going to need any sort of legal services, whether it be a family divorce or a custody issue or a finance issue or a bankruptcy issue. But if they do need you, if they find themselves on the wrong side or in the side of that, uh, one of those things, like you're the guy to call. Yeah. So well, how, well how, thank, first of all, thanks for having me on. I, I really had a, had a blast. Um, we are at a P as in Paul G is in green and is in Nancy PGNlaw.com. My email address is G nail. Um, you can always get me there. We're at 404-688-8800. Fantastic oh. phone number. Um, one of the, you know, we, we didn't even have a chance to talk about marketing, but one of the things I've always done just as a matter of principle is I'll, I'll talk to you. You got a problem, I'll talk to you. If I can help you, I will. If not, there's a chance I know somebody that might be able to. And it's been the best unintentional marketing I've ever done. Just answer the phone, give people my advice. So on that note, uh, we take phone calls. So you have an issue, call us. If we're not the right fit, uh, we'll get you to the right people. And, and I extend that offer to as many people as I can. And a lot of people take me up on it. And it's, it, you know, 
and you're telling the, you're telling the truth with that because there's oftentimes I'll get a call on something that is too complex or out of my wheelhouse or things that I just don't understand. I'm like, well, I really can't answer these questions for you, but here's my friend Garrett's information. Well, well thank and you. And they'll call you, and, and they do. You probably cuss me, <laughs> but they did. But maybe one time out of whatever, like no, it becomes some, a, a sometimes pain we client. can help them. Some, yeah, sometimes yeah, not. You know, so, in fact, you sent us a client that is a pro bono client, and it's uh, it's been incredibly rewarding being able to help this family. They, they desperately need help. And we got them, we've gotten them some great relief. Perfect. And, uh, so yeah, that's how, that's how you reach me. And I think all that stuff come full circle, man. Whatever time you spend doing pro bono work or just answering a question for somebody, even though if it's not financially viable for your firm, like it does come back. I agree. It, all, it all circles back around and one way or the other, it's, it's all good stuff. Plus I think our profession, we owe it to do those kinds of things, right? I mean, it sounds I think noble. So. Well, but we I, take an oath to do that. Um, you know, look, it's, it's rare to find a, a poor lawyer. We're all doing okay. So we have the point I make is we have the capacity to help people, um, and I think we should. Uh, I've worked on pro bono. I, I tried a pro bono criminal case, week long criminal trial. My buddy Adam Levin, fantastic experience. Didn't get paid a penny, worth tens of thousands of dollars in experience. I, I think we should do that. Um, and, and to your to your point, it's maybe not 100 percent altruistic because it, it always comes back around one way or the other. I love it. You're the man. Well, people are going to enjoy this episode. I know that they will. I'm excited for people to hear it. Um, you're a good guy, man. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it, yeah. Josh. So uh, thank you all for listening. You, you know where to find Garrett. Hopefully you don't need him, but if you do, you know where to find him. And uh, until next time, as always, keep chopping. <laughs>